0: Here at the Sociology of Everything podcast, we acknowledge the people of Ghana Yarta, whose land this episode was mainly produced on, and whose past and present elders we pay our respects to. Hi, I'm Eric Sue, And I'm Louis Everest. And we're Lou and the Sioux, And this is the Sociology of Everything podcast, brought to you by UniSA. The university that evidently has the tallest digital billboard in all of Australia.
1: Is that true? <laughs> yeah. The one is, on West, is. On, oh, is it not West Terrace, on North Terrace? Yeah, that's right. Wow. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if that's impressive for UniSA or kind of unimpressive for Australia. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's big, but is it that big? Maybe yeah. it is. Do you think any students ever go
0: to UniSA because of that billboard? Like when you decided to do your PhD at UniSA, where you're like, mom, That's dad, it. I came across this amazing billboard in Adelaide. And not only was I taken by its message, <laughs> I was also impressed by its size. And I thought to myself, if a university can build this amazing billboard, it's worthy of me
1: being a student at this institution. This could be one of your weirdest intros. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm interested in how long you've been thinking about this specific intro. <laughs> a while. A while. Yeah. Uh, yeah. In fact, this is
0: something that the university actually advertises on its website.
1: The billboard. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Interesting facts and figures. You're like, We have the tallest digital billboard really? in all
1: of Australia. Wow! Yeah. Shout out to the marketing department. <laughs> say. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll get on that billboard one day, Louis. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's when we'll know we've made it. Uh, well, it's pretty thin that billboard, so they'd have to either stretch me across multiple ones or just—I well, I'd, I'd
0: have y- to stand would... there like. This. <laughs> no, no, you'd be fine. You're tall, Louis. <laughs> I'm just going to be this like short little blob, you know, short that's little true. bit on the billboard. Yeah, that's
1: true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's enough billboard stuff, Eric.
0: <laughs> In this episode, we're going to look to unpack one of the most influential theories developed in the late 20th century by the late German sociologist Ulrich Beck. Beck, who died on New Year's Day in 2015, mm. left a really substantial legacy in the field of social theory. Beck was a true public intellectual. Mm. He was routinely asked to provide commentary in outlets like The Guardian about contemporary problems and issues. Mm. What is Beck most known for in the field of sociology?
1: Beck's most famous theory or kind of idea would be that of risk society, I'd say. Yeah. And in writing on this topic of risk society, which we're going to discuss today, uh, Beck wrote kind of, I'd say, in parallel to a number of other really big sociologists at the same time, kind of Anthony Giddens, Zygmunt, Bauman. Scott Lash. Scott Lash. These figures were sort of tracking some common things that were occurring in the world, and uh, they fed off one another's work a bit. But I think one of the reasons that risk society remains such an important topic, and I think you touched upon it in terms of being a public intellectual as well, is that it's really focusing on the big threats that we're facing. (laughs) It's Mm. focusing on the big problems that humanity is having to deal with, things like climate change, things like potential nuclear disaster. Mm. It's the things that keep people up at night. And Beck provides a kind of theoretical framework to think through these problems, why they might be occurring, and potentially how we might deal with them.
0: Yeah, and Beck developed his work over a number of decades, but he's most known for his work on Risk Society, which he first published in the mid-1980s. The text of his that we're going to examine in this episode is an article that he had published in the journal Theory, Culture, and Society in 1992, bearing the title From Industrial Society to the Risk Society, Questions of Survival, Social Structure, and Ecological Enlightenment. And this text kind of captures some of the key elements of his theory. And it helps us understand his thoughts about risk society, and in particular, how it reveals the ways in which modern societies have transformed. Because Mm. ultimately, this piece isn't just about risk. It's about how risk characterizes what's going on now in the modern world. Mm. So he has this famous tripartite account of modernity that makes a distinction between pre-modern societies- simple modern societies, and what he calls reflexive modern societies. And he attaches each of these forms of modernity to their respective type of society. So he associates pre-modern societies with traditional societies. He associates simple modern societies with industrial societies and reflexive modern societies with risk societies. So he thinks risks says something about the world we live in. Mm. But it may be useful to begin where he does and ask if people in reflexive modernization are the first in human history to encounter dangerous
1: situations. Mm. Well, they're certainly not. <laughs> danger part of life. <laughs> That's right. <And>, uh, <laughs> danger your middle name. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I yeah. wish it was. Uh, no, I don't. That's a bit silly. But uh, Beck certainly says that danger is just an ever-present part of life. And yeah. if you go to... Uh, pre-modern societies, there were certainly dangers. There was all the dangers involved in the natural environment, in storms and weather patterns and natural disasters. There was the dangers involved in crops not yielding their, their product and not growing the way they yeah. should and famine and everything else. And on top of that, he says – There was all these dangers that were considered that were religious in nature, the dangers of God not being happy of what you're doing in life and that being blamed for what's going on in the world around you. I've
0: been smited!
1: (laughs) The threat of smiting was was probably more present, I'd imagine. But the interesting thing is, Beck says that they weren't actually risks the way he defines risks. What he says they were, were hazards, these Big, dangerous things that could happen, but a bit different to what we'll describe as risks in a sec in Beck's language. There's a great quote here used to define these pre-industrial hazards. Beck states, "...pre-industrial hazards, no matter how large and devastating, were strokes of fate raining down on mankind from outside and attributed to an other, gods, demons, or nature." And so the key point about that is they're external in nature. They're not something produced and managed by a social cohort. They're something that comes from outside and we just have to deal with, get along with. (laughs)
0: Yeah. And in a modern society or in a simple modern society – our relationship to danger kind of changes, doesn't it?
1: Mm. Well, we don't just accept it the way we we potentially once would have. I mean, I I try to think in a pre-industrial society, what do you do if, you know, your crops don't grow or something goes terribly wrong with, you know, life? There's not really much you can do because it's just this external thing. You just get along with it. However, in modern society, or at least in early modern society, humans don't accept danger in that fashion. We think about danger differently. We think about danger as something we can manage, something we can plan for. We can do something about it. Yeah, we can control it. And this is really interesting for Beck. This is a moment in which we stop thinking about these things as hazards and we start thinking of them as risks. Things that we sort of bake into our decision-making process. When we plant our grain, we don't just hope for the best. Maybe if we think it could be a bad year, we plant an extra field yeah. just in case well, something goes wrong.
0: Another good example
1: of this could be
0: earthquakes. Earthquakes affect many parts of the world. Luckily, they don't really affect life here yet in South Australia. And no. beautiful South Australia, <laughs> where the University of South Australia is based. USA. <laughs> but they affect many different parts of the world. And there's one reaction we could have to them that would be very pre-modern, which is just to accept that they happen. Mm -hmm. They might radically disrupt our way of life. But in a simple modern society, there's that belief that we can design buildings. Mm -hmm. We can design infrastructure that is resistant to earthquakes. Mm -hmm. So that, yeah, we might get a bit of a shake, (laughs) Mm -hmm. a bit of a jiggle. And then that's it. We go about our everyday lives because we have applied rationality. We've used science mm-hmm. to do something about something that would normally be very disruptive.
1: That's right. And Beck describes risk as an outcome of techno-economic decision-making. It's when when we do something as part of that action, whether it's building a new building, whether it's deciding to go to university, whatever it is, we calculate what the risks of doing that might be. If that building going to be somewhere where there's going to be earthquakes, what's the earthquake risk? Going to university, am I going to miss out on having a job over that period and missing that income? All of the unforeseen consequences, we try and make them seeable. We try and calculate what the risks of any decision are. And the ultimate example of this, and Beck talks extensively about this, is insurance. Mm. <laughs> insurance is the ultimate example of managing risks. These days when we do anything, we take out insurance to try and cover us if something should go wrong. Mm. We're always contemplating something going wrong. And that's risk.
0: Now, Beck doesn't think we merely exist in the era of simple modernity. Mm-hmm. He and other authors argue that there's been a shift in recent decades, that we now exist what he calls a reflexive modern world. And he thinks this has then transformed our experience of risk. How would you explain what he's trying to argue here?
1: I think there are a few different parts to it. But one part that's central to this article in particular is the changing nature of the things we're trying to understand as risk. (laughs) So Mm. there's still a kind of external element (laughs) to the things we try and define as risk. Because what we do when we say something's a risk is we are essentially saying we can understand exactly what the danger is we can put a dollar figure on the danger. We can calculate it. We can manage it. If there's a likelihood of a flood in an area, we can come up with scenarios for how we're going to plan for that flood. But Beck says the nature of flooding is changing. The nature of the things we're trying to calculate and manage is itself changing. And he talks about these as being modern hazards, hazards that no matter how much risk planning you do, no matter how much insurance you take out, eventually the hazard will get so large, so dangerous that our risk planning and management won't be sufficient. It won't keep up with the hazards that are being created. And another really important point here is there's a reflexivity to it because some of the hazards that are being created in the modern world aren't the natural hazards that existed and were external. They're not Mm. the acts of God. (laughs) They're they're not earthquakes, but they're dangers or they're hazards that are being created by us through our action and sometimes through our risk management.
0: So... I think a different way of putting what you've just explained is that when societies switch from simple modernity to reflexive modernity, they no longer believe that risk is able to be effectively managed. And this is because of what's identified as a risk. Whereas once risk was thought to be externally imposed, but supposedly managed by societies. What the era of reflexive modernity brings into focus is the fact that our attempts to manage risk, our attempts to improve the lives we lead, actually also has a cost in itself. It is also productive of risk. So in other words, it's the belief that modern societies can't fully ever mitigate risk because all the things they do, even the ones that seem on the face of it, awesome have some sort of effect. And these effects can be actually quite negative. So let's give some examples of this is sounding too abstract. Mm-hmm. When someone decides they want to grow crops in a more efficient way, in a more productive way, mm-hmm. they might spray pesticides. If someone wants to insulate their home in a brilliant new way by using this miracle new material called asbestos, they're trying to improve people's living conditions. Mm.
1: And they're also managing risks at the same time. You're spraying your crops in case there happens to be a bad season for locusts or whatever else might attack crops. Um, a locust, a thing? Or is that like a very old-school no, thing? No, I'm sure they're, they probably they're, still, they're exist. still exist. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah, we're not farming experts here, I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, people trying to manage risks with these actions but all they're doing is creating new risks the pesticides might then be later found out to be toxic obviously we all know asbestos turned out to be a horror material that was devastating for the workers and the people who were around it on a regular basis and so every time we're trying to act to mitigate and to control risks, we're creating new risks that then we then have to need to act and mitigate and control. And if we think about what reflexivity is, yeah. the sort of constantly acting and then responding to actions and thinking about the outcomes of your actions as you do them in a never ending cycle, that's sort of what society is doing. And we're always responding to the new risk and creating new risk.
0: <laughs> a very basic way of understanding the theory of risk society is to appeal to the maxim there is no free lunch. Simple modern societies believed they could somehow solve the problems of the world once and for all, even if they didn't do it then and there, that one day they would be solved. Reflexive modern societies believe that that is an impossibility, that we constantly need to manage and address and mitigate risk because the very act of mitigating risk is itself a risky venture.
1: Yeah, and that's a key part of Beck's thesis here because he's essentially saying that as society's progressing, or not even progressing, as society's moving and things are happening, (laughs) we're constantly managing risk or attempting to manage risk, but something's changing to the hazards we're trying to manage. Mm. There's starting to be a disconnect between the problems we face And this process we've developed for calculating, predicting, insuring against those hazards. And indeed, Beck argues that the hazards we face are now becoming uninsurable. There's something about the nature of them that makes them impossible with this risk calculation process we've developed.
0: And when he's saying that they're becoming uninsurable, he's saying in some respects that they're uncalculable Mm. at some level. That's right. But it might be worthwhile to ask why he thinks that. And one of the observations, and I think it's a very astute one, is that the hazards people face in the reflexive modern world, they are, first of all, not always apparent to our senses. He says there's a type of invisibility hmm. that characterizes some of the hazards we face. And of course, we can especially see this when it comes to things like the use of pesticides. Yeah. Or indeed, when we use asbestos. Mm -hmm. If someone says, hey, there's asbestos dust in the air, be careful. Mm -hmm. I can't instantly just through the naked eye see what's Mm -hmm. in front of me and see how dangerous that is. That might only affect me years down the track. Same when it comes to, you could argue COVID. We can find ways of detecting it, but just to the naked eye, no one sees like COVID being transmitted, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? I mean, you'd have an amazing superpower if you had that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah.
1: uh, but anyways, that's an aside. You could have been paid millions by governments. <laughs> sat there at the border. <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: but you know, though, that if you had that superpower, you'd probably be kidnapped yeah. by some sort of world leader yeah. who would just constantly have you with, you know, with them, mm. and they would just make sure that they never got COVID because you would be like inspecting everyone who came to see them.
1: Yeah, that's true. Sit next to the Pope full time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But there are other differences in the way we experience hazards in the reflexive modern world. What are they? Well,
1: one of them that Beck refers to is the fact that they're just so big and dangerous. (laughs) Beck Mm. says, for the first time, humans are faced by existential threats that they don't possibly or can't possibly have an answer to if the worst case scenario occurs. Uh, Something like a nuclear winter or climate change he talks about the mega hazards they are uninsurable partly because there's not enough money in the world to deal with them (laughs) and we see this in Australia in a regular basis with people who live say in the beautiful Adelaide Hills there are areas in the Adelaide Hills where people can no longer get insurance against fire or the insurance against fire just costs a horrible and unaffordable amount of money. And that's because the risk of fire has been some so great that for an insurance company to insure against it, it would just cost them too much money. Yeah, the- so
0: the hazards that people in reflexive modernity face can be massively distributed in both space and time.
1: Yeah. So
0: he talks about, for example, how some of the hazards, some of the dangers people face could have a beginning but not an ending. And you could clearly see this in the case of climate change. Yeah. I don't think there's ever going to be like (coughs) one stand that humans take to defeat climate change. No. No,
1: definitely not.
0: Right? It's something that's going to affect future generations.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And then also, he notes how the harm that's caused by the dangers we face aren't always easily attributable to just one party.
1: No, that's the thing with, say, climate change or any contemporary risk is that who do you particularly blame? I mean, we're all partly responsible for it because we all do activities that emit greenhouse emissions, but obviously there are businesses that emit more, but there are lots of different businesses. And so as things become riskier, as the danger becomes greater, the people who you can hold responsible <laughs> become smaller. <laughs> yeah. Responsibility diminishes as hazard increases.
0: In a different piece, he put forward a really interesting idea of organizing responsibility so that we're all responsible so that no one's really responsible, mm. paradoxically. Another interesting observation he makes in this piece is just how hazards are distributed in a different way and reflective modern societies. Mm. And this leads us to a segment <laughs> that we like to call Say What? <laughs> where we examine a quote and need a further explanation. Beck writes, To reduce things to an admittedly crude formula, hunger is hierarchical. Even following the Second World War, not everyone went hungry. Nuclear contamination, however, is egalitarian and in that sense, democratic. Nitrates in the groundwater do not stop at the general director's water tap. And this is an really interesting aspect of Beck's risk society theory mm. because he's trying to point out that another key aspect of the hazardous people face in the era of flexive modernization is that they affect seemingly the lives of most people. Mm.
1: He describes them as being kind of more egalitarian. It's harder to escape them no matter where you are in the kind of social hierarchy. Yeah. Uh, It's not like the social hierarchy doesn't mean anything. Yeah. (laughs) But still, if we think about COVID, which we've all recently experienced, it did impact everyone in some way.
0: I mean, even the person I do loads of impressions of,
1: Mm. he got it. That's true. Right? Yeah. He did have, like, the most amazing hospital suite. (laughs) It was really weird. After he, like, recovered from COVID – He would like get in front of all of these crowds
0: of his supporters and he would just begin his speech by announcing, I beat COVID. (laughs) (laughs) I beat COVID. It wasn't strong enough for me. It was very weak. It was very sad. (laughs) (laughs) It's really weird, isn't it? But the other thing this quote brings our attention to is the context of when Beck first put forward his theory of risk society. Beck first, as I mentioned at the outset of this episode, produces work in the mid-1980s. And in fact, his book on Risk Society came out very soon after the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Mm. And there's a great, by the way, HBO series about
1: this. Excellent. Very good series.
0: You know, incident. And it was truly, truly terrifying for people across the world, especially people living in Europe. Mm. Because... I would imagine for some people, they realized that something about the hazards people face in the modern world are truly unique. Mm. And how do we make sense of this thing that potentially could have had no end? I mean, if Chernobyl really was a truly awful nuclear disaster Mm. that affected the entire continent of Europe, Mm. I mean, obviously, we'd be living in a very different world.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that cuts to the very core of Beck's argument because... He does see something like Chernobyl or climate change as really posing this huge challenge for the way we organise society. I mean, he describes these events as not only being physically explosive or Mm. potentially physically explosive, but being socially explosive. Yes. He says... What we're still trying to do is use this early modern form of calculating and <laughs> managing everyday risks. <laughs> yeah. But we're now facing late modern hazards, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. can't be calculated in that way.
0: So he's really trying to update our understanding, our approach mm. to managing the hazards of the 21st century yeah, and beyond. Yeah. And then this actually leads us to talk about uh, another discussion he offers in this piece, about how the emergence of risk society transforms our experience of politics. Hmm. He thinks that when we transition from industrial societies to what he calls risk society, the traditional left-right divide no longer makes as much sense as it once did. Hmm. What is he talking about there?
1: He's talking about the fact that traditionally, if we think about the left right divide, yep. it's normally thought of in terms of kind of capital versus labor. It's the mm. workers and then the factory owners sort of thing, that legacy of Marx's theory. But that doesn't necessarily make sense when it comes to modern risk society where Mm. we're not so much having conflict over the goods of society. We're now having conflict over the risks in society and that's creating new divides that are kind of more vertical than horizontal. For instance, in Australia – some of the big conflicts that are occurring around how climate change should be managed are between different industries, between the people who are involved in, say, coal mining, Hmm. uh, which doesn't just include the business owners, but also includes all the workers whose jobs are tied to the process. And then people who are involved in newer industries, say around, I don't know, wind energy or whatever else it is. But these divides aren't simple left-right divides.
0: Hmm. I mean, think of what Marx would have made of hearing about coal miners in the US supporting the Trump presidential candidacy. Mm. He may not have had the analytical tools that Beck provides us with to explain why you'd have a very working class group of people, the people he would Mm. easily characterize as being the proletariat, being so enthusiastic about a candidate who so clearly represents the bourgeoisie. And it's because Industries like the coal industry kind of sometimes operate in that framework of simple modernity. Yeah, And he makes this really interesting observation that simple modern societies were fixated on how the goods of modernity were distributed. And Marx's work obviously exemplifies this. He thought industrialization was incredible. It was amazing. Mm. He just didn't like, to put it lightly, how the goods of that system were being distributed. Yeah. But reflexive modernization realize that the production of goods also leads to the production of bads. Yeah. And so reflexive modern societies are intensely interested in how bads need to be distributed in a society. What are some examples of that?
1: So some examples of this are things like uh, where the waste products from factories are kept and stored or yeah, that's right yeah or where rubbish dumps are kept and in yeah. fact uh, in Australia at the moment there's been a big debate going on for years now about a nuclear waste dump yeah. and, and where this nuclear waste dump that's, should be a, that's positioned that's a perfect
0: example right mm. many parts of modern societies rely on nuclear energy whether that's in power plants Mm. whether that's in medical research facilities or medical treatment facilities, where do those byproducts go? Mm. They have to go somewhere. Yeah, And now we're having very serious conversations about where they're going to be distributed. Mm. So you'd see he says that the discussion then in Reflective Modern Societies really centers on how bads are distributed. And I Mm. think that's such an interesting and fascinating way Mm. to theorize the dilemmas of modern society. Mm. Absolutely. Now, it probably won't surprise listeners to hear that this theory of Beck's was not only very influential, it didn't just factor into numerous sociological discussions. Mm. Beck's theory was also subject to an intense amount of critical scrutiny and debate. Mm. So it wasn't just applied and extended, certainly by people like Beck himself. Mm. It was also subject to a number of criticisms. Some people have tried to test his theory empirically. Mm. When he argues that the hazards people face in contemporary modern societies are invisible, some people have sought to test that. Mm. A colleague of ours at UniSA has actually written a really interesting theoretical evaluation of Beck's work. And one of the things he tries to unpack, one of the things he tries to criticize is Beck's insistence that people are actually reflexive, that they coldly, rationally calculate or try to calculate (laughs) the hazards and dangers they experience in their everyday lives. Mm. And of course, Beck himself continued to write about this topic in a really extensive way after the 1980s and 1990s. He produced works about topics like cosmopolitanism and – He also developed concepts like individualization, which we're not going to be able to explore in this episode, but you can just see the richness of his work. Yeah, absolutely. Now, it might be risky for us to end the episode here, but let's just do it. You know, let's live a little. Done. (laughs) So thanks very much, as always, for listening. We'll catch you in other episodes. Thank you. The Sociology of Everything podcast is created and hosted by Eric Sue and Louis Everest. It's produced and edited by Eric Sue, with special assistance from UniSA Online and UniSA Justice Society. To learn more about studying sociology and other exciting programs, online or in person, at the University of South Australia, visit unisa.edu.au, where you can search for more details. The Sociology of Everything podcast is primarily produced on the lands of the Ghana people, The hosts of the podcast would like to pay their respects to elders past, present, and emerging. The opinions expressed in the Sociology of Everything podcast are that of the hosts and guest speakers. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions of anyone at UniSA or at the institution at large. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more about the podcast, then visit our website at sociologypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.